Digital Gonzo, episode 54, dated Thursday the 2nd of February, 2012. The Harry Potter Movie Reviews, Year One. The Philosopher's Stone. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. Good afternoon, class. Welcome to your first flying lesson. Stick your right hand over the broom and say up. Wow. Mr. Longbottom, exactly where do you think you're going? You really have the scar. Wicked. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. First years should note that the dark forest is strictly forbidden. That no magic is to be used between the classes of the corridors. The third floor corridor is out of bounds to everyone who does not wish to suffer a most painful death. Understand this, Harry, because it's very important. Not all wizards are good. I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed. Or worse, expelled. She needs to sort out her priorities. I think it is clear that we can expect great things from you. Back in late 2001, it was hard to comprehend as we sat down in the cinemas that this series would last ten years, that nearly the entire cast and crew would retain their roles throughout and we would see these kids grow up, that the three books remaining to be released would bring such darkness and such joy. We couldn't comprehend how extraordinarily special they would become for so many. But all of that did happen, and unlike most series that outstay their welcome in a barrage of colons and diminishing returns, the Harry Potter films have gone from strength to strength. This is the first of an eight-part series of podcast discussions, each covering a different film. I thought long and hard about maybe condensing some of them to save time and effort until I reached the conclusion that they deserve both. Joining me in the Philosopher's Stone debate, I have Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet. Hello. Leah Haydu of Game of Rerolled. Man, I don't know what this Philosopher's Stone thing is that you people are talking about. Um, you I'm, might know it as the Sorcerer's Stone. I might. I, we, we, we've discussed this. Americans are apparently too stupid to understand what a philosopher is. So uh, I guess I'll go with it this time. And making up the other 50% of people who aren't sure what a philosopher is, <laughs> Kelly Brown of the Married Gamers. You know, I know what a philosopher is. I, I went to college. Maybe Leah didn't. <laughs> All of those English degrees that I have did not, they missed one critical part of uh of, of Harry Potter. You mean you didn't take philosophy? I did not. 
What about ah. sorcery? Now, sorcery, I, I can't discuss that. <laughs> For this first installment, I'm foregoing the customary Gonzo essay, simply because there's so much to say about this introduction to the magical world. I'm just going to throw topics into the ring, and we'll all pick over them. Certain characters and subjects have, however, been earmarked for specific discussions in relevant later podcasts. For example, Snape in film eight. That doesn't mean we can't talk about Severus in the first seven, just that his time in the spotlight will be in the last one. And just to get this out of the way, in order to discuss the depth and texture of these stories and go back and forth, this has to be considered a total spoiler zone. We will reference the last film from the first show onwards. Now, if you still have films to see or books to read, go get that done first, please, because these revelations are too good to be broached by us first. You know, I, I read the first book actually when I was still teaching preschool at the time. And um, it was kind of interesting because when I read it, I, I have a very, very active imagination uh, still. And I was getting nightmares when I was reading this book. And I thought to myself, when this gets made into a movie, it's going to be extremely dark. Lo and behold, not as dark as it was in the book. Had you read books two, three, and four when you saw the first one? Yes, I had. Um, but I always go back and read the book again before I watch the movie. Mm. I'm one of those kind of odd people that have to reread the book before I see the movie. You know, I was trying to think of whether I'd read all the first four books or not. I actually didn't start reading the Harry Potter series for a couple of years mm. uh, after it it actually came out. I didn't read the first Harry Potter book until... I was actually uh, traveling. I was in Spain, and I had the English version of the first book, and uh, one of the people that I was traveling with actually had the Spanish version of the first book, and we were kind of comparing notes as we were reading these two versions of the book, and that would have been the summer of 2001. So there was a pretty significant gap in between uh, when the books started coming out, which was 1997, and when I actually read them, I, I don't, I don't know how I managed to miss them for so long. I think it must have been a, um, well, if I'm honest, it was probably kind of a, hey, I'm an English major, I'm a snob. This is too, you know, this, this is just this little popular culture phenomenon that I don't really need to be a part of. And then I figured out that that was kind of stupid and actually started reading them because they are excellent books. Um, but I, I don't think that I had seen, that I had read, rather, all of the first four books by the time I saw the first movie, but I know that I had at least read the first one and probably the first two. Yeah, I mean, if, if I remember rightly, I, I was probably in a similar situation to Leah um, in the, between 97 and 2000. I was um, doing an English degree and for various reasons wasn't really reading much that wasn't actually part of my coursework. Um, and I think I was vaguely aware of this thing called Harry Potter that was a kid's book, but it wasn't until the film was starting to be talked about and, and advertised that I really thought, eh, maybe we need to have a look at that. And then we got hold of, I, I can't remember whether it was the first two or the first three all together and just burned through them to the point where it, by the time it came around to sort of seeing uh, the Philosopher's Stone in the cinema, um, I was really quite excited about it and not all that fussed about another fantasy film that was out around the same hmm. time. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, just to add a bit of, uh, of extra detail to that one, I think it, like it, was, it was 2001 when we read these, and it was throughout the summer. And Goblet came out in July 2000. I've just been doing some checking here, which means there was an entire year of everybody reading this. I think Goblet was the one where just everyone started reading it, mm. and I was seeing Goblet all over the place. People were starting to read that book without having read the first three, because everyone was... You know, just going, you've got to read these books. Don't even bother with the first three. Just go straight in with Goblet. I, I do <laughs> wonder, actually, if that was because Goblet was so much more substantial than the first three mm. that they really thought we have got to market this one. The other three kind of, we'll leave them to themselves. And if kids pick them up, then kids pick them up. But Goblet of Fire is so... I'm going to say dense, but I mean that in terms of content, not in terms of level. Um, but it is so dense. It's not the kind of book that kids are just going to randomly pick up unless they've had a prod to do so. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think what I did was I picked up the first book and then I read that to you aloud. Mm. And then I read the second one and the third one. I, Goblet was our first stumbling block. That took a while to read through because it's chunky as all hell. But um, we'd read all four of them by the time we actually saw Harry Potter. Film one, we shall call it. We were, like, totally psyched and totally pumped. And by the fourth book, it's already started to get dark. Cedric's died, and Dumbledore rolls up his sleeves and goes, right, I'm going to restart the Order of the Phoenix. It's like it's really picking up its pace. So then when you see film one, exactly the same as what I think you're talking about, Kelly. I was just, oh... It's really kiddy and it's really rosy and it's really sweet and it's really honeyfied and it's just kind of feels a bit fluffy and a bit kind of like throwing stuff in for the kids. Right. And it's on, it's only now going back after it got so dark that you didn't believe that. By, by film six, it's so dark. I actually have to turn up the brightness on my TV to even make out anything that's going on on the screen. It is physically dark. Um, but you know, I wonder if the reason why it was so kidified is because the actors were so young yeah and it's it's a lot to put little kids through right but um they they're originally they were talking about getting spielberg on to direct and uh, he's very closely linked with um chris columbus anyway and his idea was originally to have it animated and then he was going to have it contract the first two <laughs> irony being contract the first two books into one film whereas by the end it was the exact opposite and I think a lot of that Spielberg feel is still retained in this one. Even though it's a British production with all British actors, it still feels like one of his movies. I suppose maybe John Williams being there certainly helps. The first two, I think, certainly do feel, to stereotype completely, they feel a bit more Hollywood. They feel a bit more Americanized, and, and I think the, the real British pedigree comes through in the later ones, which is kind of ironic considering who directed the third, but um, I think that does start to flow later on. Well, I think they're, they're very grandiose to begin with. You know, they, they kind of... I, I would agree with you there, Sharon, that they're kind of... You know, it's, it's like they want to bring... I think they wanted to broach everybody in the world. You know, they wanted to bring the Americans in yeah. to the British world, kind of. You know, let's get everybody in here. Because a lot of times it seems like British movies, it's sometimes hard to get the Americans to buy into. And maybe they wanted to do that so that everyone would buy into it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Something I didn't quite realize, um, I guess up until about yesterday, I would have completely agreed with all of this, but Honestly, if you're reading the books at the same time as you're watching the movies or even just, you know, to, to take a look at the books, the first couple of books up until about Goblet of Fire, 
They are a little more kiddie. They are a little less dark and less yes. complex. So I don't think that there's all that big a disconnect between the movies getting more dark and more dense and and uh, more adult, perhaps, and the books doing the exact same thing. I, I mean, I, I definitely agree that there is that difference, but I don't think it's all that out of place considering how the books handle the same thing. The same Absolutely. The, Absolutely. He, yeah. it, the books grow with Harry as well. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a real shift in polarity in the way he sees the world uh, around the midpoint when, you know, things happen to him that mean he cannot have that innocent view of things that he had when he was younger, which up until that point he's still managed to maintain a little bit of. Um, And that's very distinctly there as well. And I do think that they they brought that in quite nicely. But I do think that in the first couple – um, and having seen Chamber again fairly recently, I would say it's definitely more so in, in uh, film one than it is in film two. Um, but it does have that slightly more sweet, jolly, um, I don't quite know how to put my finger on it, but it's, there's almost a jingly feel about it that I, I personally don't think the book had quite so much of. Well, and I think, too, in the first couple of movies, they retained a lot of what was in the book, where when we saw it farther along, there were a lot of chunks of the book that just had to get left out because Mm -hmm. J.K. Rowling just put so much into her novels that they couldn't put onto the film. Oh, they would have been. That's why they had had to put the last film into two movies. There's several reasons for that. One of them was that it was just that much. Uh, Another one was, of course... Hey, we get people to buy two tickets, um, but, but yeah, no one wants to put out a f- like a five-hour film. How long did you work it out in the end, Leah? Today? Uh, just shy of five hours, I think. Ooh. They were a little a little shorter than actually I had thought that they were, but still, yeah. I mean, it's it's well over four, so it's a, a pretty substantial chunk of, of film there. A lot of people complained about that. Oh, I was just thrilled to be able to spend one extra evening in in the in that world. Mm. I just it was worth the extra weight. Yeah, considering that the alternative would have been them to pare uh, the the last book down to enough to make it even, you know, a two and a half three hour film, they would have lost so much. Oh yeah. And a lot yeah. of it would have been cut out of the first part because obviously all the the crux stuff happens in the second one. So that's but film seven is my favourite. So that that would have been the casualty. Yeah. To, to wit, I am extremely glad they cut it in two. The, the only time that I was actually kind of annoyed, they held back film six, if you remember. It was going to come out in the uh, Christmas time of 2008, but Dark Knight had been released in, in the summer, and they got a fantastic revenue from that, Warner Brothers. And they thought, well, if we, if we just hold this back till the summer of next year, we can have two fantastic tax years, and our shareholders will... You know, reinvest, and it was purely financially motivated, and that seems so clinical on their part to go. We'll just make him wait an extra six months. I was like, I can't wait six months. Give us Potter now. Actually, on that note, regarding Dark Knight, Philosopher's Stone, or Sorcerer's Stone, 11th highest grossing film of all time. Any guesses as to the first ten, in no particular order? Pirates of the Caribbean. Which one? 
<laughs> the first one. The first one, probably. Uh, no, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl is not in the first ten. Really? Oh, say oh please don't tell me one of the later Pirates of the Caribbean is. Three of the later Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, oh my God. Because the Golly. first film got everyone seeing it in the cinema and talking about it, and then it, it picked up on DVD, and everyone finally came around to the idea that Johnny Depp was just tremendous. Yeah, but surely by number four, they'd realised it wasn't quite worth that level of investment. Uh, Titanic has to be in there. Dead Ma- Titanic is number two. <laughs> Spider-Man. So, hang on. Spider-Man, no. Really? Um, let me just cross off these, because I've already said uh, Dead Man's Chest was actually number one, two, three, four, five, six highest grossing film of all time was the was the third no, hang on, was the second film in the series. Star Wars has to be in there. Nope. Yeah. Really? Astonishingly, none of the Star Wars films are in here. Wow. I think somebody said Avatar, didn't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain Cameron was like the only person ever to beat himself or something. <laughs> beat himself. Yes. <laughs> I don't think no pun intended. <laughs> uh, he, he became king of the world twice over, two different worlds. Yeah, Avatar was number one. Avatar is the highest Holy grossing crap. film of all time. Oh, I hang on a second. You know what? I have never seen Avatar or Titanic in the, in, the, uh, Titanic? in the theater. I have not seen go Titanic, see, period. I've seen Avatar, just it. not in the theater. I don't want to. Go see Titanic in 3D. It's, Guess what? It's the boat protest sinks. at this point. Yes. Um, I said three parts of the Caribbean films. is only Dead Man's Chest and Stranger Tides. The fourth film is the seventh highest grossing film of all time. But not the third. I, 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 know, I knew it took insane amounts of bank, but it turns out that actually didn't make the top ten now, all told. Dead Man's Chest yeah. did. How, so many how many do we, we got have so far? We've got we six have or left. Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six left. Crap. I'll give you a clue. One of them is a Harry Potter film. <laughs> it's got to be the last one. Yep. Deathly Hallows Part 2 is the third highest grossing film of all time. Two of the remaining five will depress you, probably. <laughs> <laughs> is it Big Mama's house? No. <laughs> We've got to do this bit quicker because this is going to take... Really Why don't you just time. go ahead and tell okay, us? Okay, I've already Maybe. mentioned one of them, Dark Knight. That's the tenth highest. Um, it's not one of the depressing ones, obviously. Nope. I was say, one's going to be like Santa Paws or something like no, that. No, <laughs> Toy Story 3 is the seventh highest. Sorry, Stranger Tides is the eighth highest. Return of the King, the only Lord of the Rings film to get into here, is okay. the fifth highest grossing film of all time. Only just edged out by Transformers 3, Dark Seriously? of the Moon. Yeah, Michael Bay makes some decent bank. I, I haven't seen that one. By all accounts, it's terrible. But the the ninth highest grossing film of all time depresses me. Alice in Wonderland, the Tim Burton one, oh, which no. I loathe. Really? Yeah, it was bad. It God, was I hated good. that film. Did Did you like it, Kelly? I've never seen it. Oh God. Tim Burton saw the, the Disney no. animated Alice in Wonderland <laughs> and then just sort of wrote various things that are in it down on pieces of paper and then they just reached into the hat and pulled them out and went, yeah, we'll put a caterpillar in, yeah, we'll put Tweedledum and Tweedledee in, yeah, we'll put... So disappointing because I like Tim Burton and I like Johnny Depp, but that just seemed... Oh, God, why? I think Tim, Tim Scottish for some reason. <laughs> Tim, Tim Burton has worked up this reputation that when I hear he's working on some of my favorite children's books, I think, wow, that's awesome. He could do such a good job with that. And then he doesn't. It's very frustrating. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's move on because that, that, is, that is quite a list. But, uh, yeah, um, Avatar, then Titanic, then Deathly Hallows Part 2, which just goes to show how... Harry Potter really did enter into the public conscious because ultimately it's up against the biggest 3D you have to see this incredible world of all time 
Um, and then a giant boat sinking, which got the old people into the cinema at long last. And people just kept going back to see it over and over again. That's why it got so... It's interesting how many, like, end of franchises are in there. Or, you know what mm. I mean? The, the the last ones or the later ones. Because it takes that long for people to get that they're good. Yeah, but it's the exact opposite of the whole law of diminishing returns thing. Yeah. Each, each Transformers film has made significantly more money than the last. And there has been significantly worse than the last. But the Harry Potter films, as I said earlier, got better. Mm. So let's get to the actual story, shall we? Yes. Okay, right. So, the Dursleys. I was always really annoyed that they didn't show the Dursleys. It. They didn't give them enough screen time. They didn't really set up Harry's world with the Dursleys enough. They were like, right, okay, he's got this horrible aunt and uncle and this awful brother. Let's get them on the screen and let's get them off screen now. send Harry to Hogwarts as fast as possible. That was the biggest casualty, I thought, of the... Uh, jump to the screen. And they, that remains so for the rest of the series. They were only ever sort of a footnote. I agree, but I think there's a reason for that. And it, it comes back to what I said about them slightly Hollywoodizing the, the first film. The um, the orphan kid, or the, the kid who's deprived of, of uh, a loving family, is... You look at some of the best British children's books, most of Roald Dahl's work. Um, you know, there's, there's all these stories, and I know, I know it's there in American stories as well, but a lot of the, the books that I grew up with, um, this idea of a, a child who has a very, very deprived childhood is, if you look at it from an adult perspective, it's really black. And if you paint that too um, if you make that too over the top and you go into how horrible that is it's difficult to then overcome that to get into the fantasy of the story if that makes sense you, you know it really does and I think you know like I talked to a couple of my 6th grade students about the movie versus the the book this past week over a lunch just to get their perspective from a 6th from a grade perspective and they were saying and I asked them about the Dursleys if there was much that they needed to see more and they told me no that seeing them on screen the amount that they saw was all they needed because they knew that he had a bad life and that when when they got into the Hogwarts, he still talked a little bit about the Dursleys and that gave them all they need. The little kind of flashbacks from him talking about it was all they needed. Mm -hmm. So you still get that without seeing them. One of the complaints with a lot of the films is that they assume that you've read the book. The complaint leveled most at Azkaban is that they rush through so much of the plot at times, they just assume that you've read the book, you don't need to have this stuff explained to you, they just need to get it onto the screen and then money passed. So although it, it could be considered by many to be the best, it's also a really bad adaptation from, from people who really love the book's point of view. We've had at least one person on the forums has gone, this is my least favourite film of all time, let alone of the Harry Potter films, because it does such a disservice to the book. I think it actually does a really good job. They, they left out a few too many things. I wanted to know about Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs on screen. I wanted that to be a significant thing. However, the first film seems to do the opposite of that. It seems to just assume you haven't read any of the books and you need to have everything explained to you, but just in a really sort of short clipped way of like, you know, this is that, that does that, that does this and that does that. To, to kind of go back, to tie that to what we were saying about the Dursleys, like, I literally had just finished a reread of the book when I went to, to watch the movie today. Um, so, so it was very, very fresh in my mind, which was what I wanted. And just to take that beginning scene as an example, 
it was almost like they took an outline of what happened with the Dursleys to introduce them and and just kind of filled that in the bare minimum as possible. And some spots are like that. They want to hit all the high points and they want to make sure that you know exactly what's going on here, but there's not a whole lot of, of background material. Like the, the very first scene in the movie is Dumbledore coming into, uh, into the street and, and taking down the lights. There's a whole section in the book before that introducing the Dursleys and kind of getting you into the mindset of, wow, yeah, these are really incredibly mundane people. Uh, and that's that's missing from the book. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that it gives you a different focus. And I do think that it kind of speaks to how they cut a lot of... I don't exactly want to say cut a lot of the fat because I don't think that there was a whole lot of fat in this book because it's it's pretty short relatively and it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, exposition going in different directions like a lot of the later ones do. So I, I'm not exactly sure what to call it, but they they skeletonized almost a few parts of this book of, of the book to make the movie. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. When I first saw the film, I kind of wanted them to really focus on how sad Harry was and how lonely Harry was, but considering the the many, many shots later on of Harry being slowly broken down and, and being isolated, it's kind of like they had to have him start from somewhere. And if he started off just this broken, isolated child, it would just be emo the whole way through, Harry staring at walls and crying. Um, but Which, to be doesn't... fair, a child who spent his first few years of life living in a broom cupboard probably would. The first ten treated... years. They don't give him his own room until he's 11, you know? He's and treated unfairly. Scared of him. Mm-hmm. He's treated unfairly and unkindly by the Dursleys the whole way through, and he's made to feel very, very small. But he's not in physical danger. And later on, obviously, he is put in very real danger, and there is malevolence and hatred towards him for people who actually seek to do him the worst kind of harm. So it needs to be put in perspective. And going back to it, it's like, eh, you know, fair, fair enough. They made sure he got fed. That's. I mean, they did the bare minimum. That's what the Dursleys did. Yeah, and um, they they were family. I suppose he he does have that um, that connection in some way to the family that he's lost, however remote that may be. This is, however, Petunia's only chance to shine. She never really gets to unleash at any other point. There is one deleted scene in film seven, which I really wish they'd left in. Have you? Have you? I mean, I know Sharon's seen it. Leah and, and Kelly, do you know what I'm talking about with Petunia? Uh, no. No. It's very, very short. Harry just goes into the empty living room because they've cleared all of their furniture out because they've got to be moved on because they're in danger. And she, it's just Petunia staring into an empty room and she says, just very quietly, I have lived in this house for 20 years. And now in a single night I'm expected to leave. They'll torture you. If they think for a moment you know where I'm going, they'll stop at nothing. Do you think I don't know what they're capable of? You didn't just lose a mother that night in Godric's Horror, you know. I lost a sister. Because that that informs so much upon her attitude to him for his entire life. Mm. Her persecution of him by the fact that he is like her sister. 
I think that's something that they miss by uh, getting rid of a lot of the Dursley stuff in the first yeah. film because there is a lot more in the book about how they very pointedly do not speak about his parents. They do not. It, uh, Mr. Dursley is kind of afraid to say anything when he hears people. He thinks he might have heard something about the Potters, you know, but he's not really sure. But he doesn't want to bring it up because he's afraid of the fallout. And, you know, if this guy's afraid to talk to his wife about something, it's probably because she's going to really, really flip out. Sharon, you asked something when we watched it a couple of weeks ago about why does Vernon not want Harry to go to Hogwarts? Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I was trying to work out what the motivation was um, for Vernon to be so resistant to the idea of Harry going elsewhere because while Harry's under his roof, I mean, yes, at this point they're still keeping him in the broom cupboard and, um, you know. Not even just elsewhere, it's specifically to Hogwarts. Yeah, he he's, really doesn't want him to go. He's, if, if Dumbledore takes Harry away, that is effectively a burden off Vernon's shoulders. He doesn't have to worry about him. He doesn't have to feed him. He doesn't have to clothe him or anything like that for at least, you know, the duration of the term. So, in a way, it kind of doesn't make sense until, and there's, there's, I was going to say this before about um, Petunia, actually. There are a handful of moments scattered throughout the series, and I don't know whether they are there intentionally or whether this is just me reading back into it. But there are a few moments where um, something happens and Vernon's doing his usual sort of purple-faced flip-out routine, and something passes across her face, and it's almost like she wants to not exactly defend Harry, but that there is a flash of... Will you leave him alone? But she doesn't act on it. There's that bit where Aunt Marge says, um, if there's something wrong with the bitch, there's something wrong with the pup. That's right. And she, and she, she looks yeah. up. There's just a moment where she, she looks at her. It doesn't focus on her, though. It's no, just it like, doesn't. if it's you're looking background. at her at the time, then you'll notice it, but otherwise you wouldn't. Absolutely. Um, but it, Vernon almost seems to have this... Um, he, he resented the, um, the unusualness, the, um, uh, the implication of the magic world existing, um, seems to offend his muggle sensibilities to such an extent that he would cut his own nose off to spite his face and mm. maintain his having to, to put up with Harry just to uh, so, stop him getting yeah. into that world. So Harry being there means that he's not somewhere where they have to acknowledge that place exists. Absolutely. But, yeah. but, you know, I almost wonder if it's not necessarily that he is concerned that it exists or if it's that he almost is jealous of the fact that it exists, that he wishes that he could be part of that world. I don't necessarily think it's it's wanting to be part of the the magical world, but certainly I think there is an element of um, of that in people who or in, in ca- the characters who push the the Muggle ideals so fervently. You know that they they hate the idea of, of uh, magic or you know anybody being special or unusual or different. And even Petunia, to an extent, has a streak of that. And I think it's because she was jealous of Lily. I was going to say, wasn't there right. a specific passage in the seventh or, or sixth book about Petunia being jealous of Lily? Right. When um, Dudley gets his his pigtail by <laughs> um, Hagrid. Hagrid. Hagrid, we never know how he gets that t- that pigtail off. It gets removed in the in. Don't they mention it in the second book that it gets removed surgically? It's in the first book because it's wet. Oh, yeah, okay. it's mentioned that it gets removed surgically. But you know, could you imagine having to go to the doctor and explain how your son <laughs> got a pigtail? Um, that's not something that really happens. Just um, 
I don't know how my son ended up with a tail. How did you explain that? It's it's there. Just get it off him. Right. Exactly. I mean, maybe Dumbledore put them in touch with a a sympathetic doctor who was aware of the magical world and knew that this kind of thing happens sometimes. No, they wouldn't have gone there. They'd have gone. Yeah. No, they they wouldn't have uh, have accepted that. He, he considers Dumbledore to be a crackpot anyway. He wouldn't trust him. Sure. Some doctor that would be okay with a pigtail. A pigtail would move him, but maybe take him to a vet. <laughs> <laughs> Just stick a rubber band on it and wait ten years. That does bring up something. I'm going to need some clarification because I haven't. I only ever read the books once each. Is there any specific reason why Vernon and Petunia are? bound to look after Harry. I know that they actually do off, uh, afford a magic protection spell by their house. As in, if Harry is there, he cannot be found, he cannot be seen. And obviously, Dumbledore wants Harry to stay there, but what did he threaten them? Did he bribe they're them? His, they're his only living relatives. So they're duty-bound? Uh, that's legally, I think, in legally, this country, yes. they would be the first people that the law would go to to say, this child is now an orphan, can you take him? And, oh, you've got them already. And, uh, <laughs> and by and, the way, he, and how do you explain the, I mean, you know, they explained to him that the reason why he has this scar is because of a car crash. Yes. It, I don't know. I, there, there's, there's all these little things that just crack me up. Car yes. crashes are hilarious. <laughs> car crashes are, yeah. <laughs> Aren't they just? Well, no, but anyway. <laughs> no, I, I think that there is a suggestion somewhere that, that Petunia makes some kind of promise. I'm not sure when or where or why, but I'm, I'm sure that's mentioned somewhere. I, I think, think you're she right. I don't. from Dumbledore in one of the books, doesn't she? Where he's like, you know, I'll find if you if you're not going to look after Harry, Petunia, you and I will have words mm. or something. In fact, it's not in the films. I I, I know it's not in the first book. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but Sharon, I think you're right. I because I it's again it's not in the first book, but I. I I seem to remember something very similar. But if if she really did have, beyond the jealousy and beyond whatever initial revulsion she might have felt, you know, she if she still has that bond with her sister, then, you know, she's, even if she has some kind of initial disgust, she's going to want to at least do the bare minimum to keep her child. I think they, they, they may have referenced it repeatedly uh, later on in the books because uh, Joe would have been, I'm going to refer to J.K. Rowling as Joe from now on because it's, it's nice, um, would have received many, many letters from children as to why Harry has to keep going back to his rotten uncle and aunt and she needed to give them something that would make them go, oh, okay, so that's why. Mm. But we never really got it in the films. No. So Especially yeah. not in the first one where the characterization was a lot thinner than it could have been. We go to Diagon Alley. <laughs> I think I'm just going to let Sharon off the leash at this point. And uh, do you want to talk about Ollivanders? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll step right over the whole thing about this being moved forward a month in time so Harry never... Don't step over it. Mention it. Uh, well, it just... it It's a small thing and it shouldn't matter. And there are other changes that, that should bug me no more. But it really annoys me that in the pacing of the book, Harry is introduced to this world and he sees... He gets a taster of the magical world, mm. and he sees the, the shops and the and you know the the whole sort of leaky cauldron thing and the the magic wall that reveals diagonally and all the rest of it. And then he has to go back 
mm-hmm. to the, the mundanity of the Dursleys. And he's got all this excitement about where he's going and what he's doing, but ultimately he has to go back first and, and just kind of accept that this is where he has to stay for the time being. It's a micro version of the rest of the series. Absolutely. Sure. In so. the film, Hagrid whisks him off to go shopping, and then bam, that's it, they're off to school. There's no, um, you know, he doesn't have time to absorb this. You know, it's huge changes, uh, huge changes in his, not only his life um, from a personal perspective, but his whole worldview has been turned upside down. Um, and he's l- learned all these things about his parents that he never knew, and it, it just kind of throws him straight into the boarding school story. Um, and I think it's... Again, it's characterization. It's a missed opportunity to, um, to deepen Harry's character. Um, but the, the part of the Diagon Alley shopping trip where he goes into Ollivander's wands. Now, this is my favorite scene in the book, pretty much. Um, the way it's written, um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but if you know what I mean, when I say this, there is a shiver down the spine when she talks about, um, you know, the, the dust on the boxes and the, um, the measuring tape that, that takes all his dimensions so that Ollivander can find the perfect wand for him. And when she's describing Ollivander himself and the way he talks and the things he refers to and, um, you know, he's giving Harry the lore on these wands and what they're made of and, and the significance of all of that. And they scrap all that in favour of a fireworks show. And the, the, the whole point that a wand in the hand of an inexperienced wizard that it's not meant for does nothing. It's inert. But in the film, it's almost like they think, you know, we need to catch people's attention at this point. What we need is multicolored sparks and explosions. And Ollivander would go out of business in a week if they all did that when the kids came in. You know, it, it, these... Sparks flying left, right and centre and chucking his stock all over the floor and, um, you know, half of the ones seem to come out of the boxes broken. He would never make any money that way. And I think, Alex, you've said it would be like handing a child a loaded gun to practice with. <laughs> Just squeeze up a few rounds into the ceiling. Yeah, and absolutely. The walls. Just and fire into those live grenades over there. That would be fun. <laughs> I, I just it, it it ruined it for me a little bit, and that I was already knocked about the whole you know let's just miss a month out of Harry's life, um, and it just. I think I remember like turning to you in the cinema and you just going. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I was somewhat ratty at that point, and then also the fact that by missing an entire month out of Harry's life, they make him a Virgo, not a Leo. But if you've no interest, wrong. In that, <laughs> in uh, the Zodiac, then that will mean nothing to you. But, He's um, a total Leo. He is, yeah. yeah. But anyway, the Ollivander right, thing. So there's that. Thankfully, John Hurt is fantastic as Ollivander, so you almost, if you can sort of tune out the uh, Harry firing off 357 Magnum rounds all over the place. As I, th- I think I said earlier to Leah, if uh, Ollivander had been there with a shield spell to just stop any particularly nasty or offensive spells from killing him or, or destroying his shop, or if he'd used the same spell that Dumbledore used to repair the Muggle House in the beginning of uh, film six, just to sort of undo Harry's destruction, that would have made sense. But he just goes, oh, this is most irregular. No, the wand chooses the master. There's that. They miss out the bit with Draco uh, in the uh, robe shop, don't they? That's yep. a significant early meeting point. They meet in the castle instead. Yeah. 
Lyra refers to Draco as stupid white-haired boy. It's pretty accurate, which I was going to say, which he is at this stage. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely. Definitely more on Draco in film six, because that is Draco's time to, if not shine, do the exact opposite of shine. (laughs) He's actually one of my favourite casting choices throughout the whole film because and i think that the whole reason for that is that he never really fails to make me want to punch him in the throat there is that yeah he did he did do it and that's what he's supposed to do he's he's supposed to be that odious little thing that i can't say on this podcast (laughs) actually idiotic boy (laughs) yes i will say at least six really changes his character around We'll talk about this on, on that particular podcast, but I didn't want to punch Draco in that because I saw what, what he was going through. Uh, at, at that point, he needed guidance, he needed help, he needed uh, a haven, and he had nothing. He just had death on either side. What I find really interesting, though, is, and, and I'll talk more about this in six, but you watch Tom Felton in interviews, and no offense meant to him intended, but... When you see Daniel Radcliffe, you think, yeah, I can see where all that acting comes from. You watch Tom Felton and you think, where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> Maybe that makes him a better actor. Maybe it does, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like Anthony Hopkins. He can just turn it on and off. Well, unless he was putting it on for the interview, but the particular one I'm thinking of, he'd come across as a real Cockney-wide boy and it just didn't fit. <laughs> was that the one with the shrunken head? Uh, it might have been. Oh, God. You've got to discount everything with, with uh, the, the Lenny Henry in it, in general. I don't know if, you, if uh, Kelly and Leah, you, you've heard of Lenny Henry. Very unfunny British comedian. He's had his moments. When? I can't remember. Okay. Talking <laughs> about really good actors. Back again, Harry? I see that you, like so many before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Arisette. I trust by now you realize what it does. Let me give you a clue. The happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself, exactly as he is. So then it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes, and no. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. Now you, Harry, who have never known your family, you see them standing beside you. But remember this, Harry. This mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. That is why tomorrow it will be moved to a new home. And I must ask you not to go looking for it again. It does not do to dwell on dreams, Harry, and forget to live. Richard Harris's Dumbledore. Uh, Leah, you specifically mentioned earlier today that you, you understood why they had to change actors seeing as Richard Harris had shuffled off this mortal coil, sadly. Um, But you took a long time to warm to Michael Gambon, and in fact, still kind of prefer Richard Harris. So so why? That's not exactly what I said. I said that that at the time, 
it did in fact take me uh, quite a while to to come around to the to Michael Gambon the new the new quote unquote Dumbledore uh but while at the time I preferred Richard Harris uh looking back I much prefer what Michael Gambon did I think it was kind of a case of the first one that you see is kind of the one that you associate in your mind with that character or at least that's how right. it tends to be a, a lot of the time but like I said, looking back on the series as a whole, yeah, I, there's something, going back and watching the first film again now, there's, there's just something missing from Richard Harris's Dumbledore, and I'm not 100% sure what it is. It's some kind of, reading through the books, he's not a bad Dumbledore by any stretch, but he's just, he plays it a little too flat and a little too straight. Um, it's, there's something to Dumbledore, or at least I read there to be something to Dumbledore that's a little more, and I, when I was trying to describe this earlier, I couldn't come up quite with the right word, and I still don't know that I quite have it, but mischievous, lively, there's just some kind of spark in Dumbledore that isn't quite there with Richard Harris. He's, I, he's very stately, he is very headmasterly. Oh, right, sorry, no, when you were talking about it earlier, I thought you meant the other way around, that no, uh, no, no, no. was less mischievous. No, 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 completely the other way. Um, yeah, no, that's, Gambit has that, and Harris doesn't, um, or at least not quite as much and i think maybe i mean maybe that has something to do with the fact that he was not particularly long for this world when he was doing these films uh but he seems very faint like if you smacked yeah. him on the arm he'd fall over and maybe die i think well, though you you could say to that 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 could quite easily be and again whether this is intentional or whether this is just in retrospect that's how harry sees him in that, in that young frame of mind that he is throughout um, philosophers, throughout chamber, um, he is a little bit distant and, like you say, Leah, a little bit flat. And, you know, there's, there's not quite that spark. There's not quite that click. The two of them, from Harry's perspective, become a lot closer in Azkaban. And I actually think that the change at that point, necessary though it was, um, because of, of obviously Richard Harris no longer being there to do it, I think it really, really works because you can, I mean, you, you know what it's like when you, you meet somebody and you know them in a certain capacity for a certain length of time and you see them in a certain way and then you go through something together or something changes and something happens that completely shifts the way you look at that person. And it almost makes them a completely different person to you. And the fact that they had that, I think, I personally think it really works. I think Richard Harris works fantastically as the Dumbledore for the first two for that being Harry's perspective. And uh, Michael Gambon is sensational for the rest of them for, for the, same, the same reason, that shift in perspective and Harry seeing him in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that in the first couple, I think Harris just was more almost like a principal that you look at as potentially going to get you in trouble. Mm. You know, kind of like okay, he's here as my principal and my overseer, and not necessarily as my friend. He's here to guide me. Where when we see him in Azkaban, he's more as like like you said, Sharon. We've gone through the crap that we've had to go through. And now he is my, not necessarily just my overseer, but he's my companion. Mm. And he's more of my father figure 
Yeah, and his vulnerabilities and his flaws start to come through. Right, and he can take me under my wing and help me grow up like I need to. The other thing that's very important is that the Lord of the Rings films had all all come out when the third Harry Potter film came, and Gandalf in that not only informed on the films, but informed on the books. There, the portrayal of Dumbledore throughout the seven books gets steadily, steadily more like Gandalf, although he's less cantankerous as, than Gandalf. But specifically in film six, when he's Dumbledore the Grey, you whack that crooked wizard's hat on him and he's the same character. It's not a bad thing, and there are many, many uh, obvious influences to, to J.K. Rowling's work that she's sort of woven in her favourite aspects. That, for example, the Dementors are basically ring raids of a different kind. Shall we go to McGonagall? Sure. You know, in this film, I think she almost kind of plays a motherly role to Harry. She she starts out kind of you kind of see her being a little tough on him, but then when she's in the scene where they have the their flying their first flying lesson, and Harry takes off and she sees him and says, you know, hey, you're gonna be a seeker. Um, you kind it's of see quote, this, it is actually <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you kind of see this this pride of almost a motherly pride in him like wow this kid is going to do some great things here at Hogwarts and could it, it be it, grandmotherly pride it, it I was going to say she, didn't she taught um, James and Lily as well didn't she she did you kind of throughout the movies see him kind of turn to her when he has some problems it's it's interesting because there there aren't other people in the teachers that he turns to and Apart so it, Lupin Correct, but as as the female teacher, and so at the very beginning here, she is one that starts overlooking him and protecting him. Mm. So I think that's really interesting. She did that at the very beginning too, when she and um, Dumbledore are yeah. waiting for him to be brought to the Dursleys. Well, I was going to say the the relationship that she has with him later on. Um, one of the things that. I, that, that really appealed to me about the particularly the early Harry Potter books is the conventions of the 1930s, 1940s boarding school stories that particularly mm. Enid Blyton... Uh, I was going to ask about that because well I haven't thought. read any of the Enid Blyton books and yeah. I guarantee a lot of our listeners probably haven't either. So you can I think at this stage they'd probably bore you a little bit, you know, as it, girls going horse riding and things like that. It's not that entertaining. Describe them in painful detail. <laughs> <laughs> this is a literary A lot, of, lot well. of focus on the content of tuck boxes, I have to say, which, again... Joe really keeps to where she goes into the feasts and the food and <laughs> the sweets and everything. That is totally a convention of those those stories. The element of uh, the the house mistress um, and the the fact that McGonagall is the head of Harry's house that that pastoral care and that pastoral role that's what the house mistress or master is supposed to be. So it does make perfect sense that she would be there for him in that context. But because you've already seen her showing that concern for him as a baby when the, the fact that he's going to be in her house is completely irrelevant, um, it, it gives a depth to that that um, 
it could be seen as, at least in the initial stages, quite a superficial relationship. But because you've already seen that concern and that genuine caring for him, you know there's more to it than that. The ghosts. Got to mention these right now because they removed one and they fluffed several of the others. Um, the Bloody Baron. The, the, he's only featured once in the entire series that I recall. Um, and he's just this sort of camp-looking bloke in a, a, uh, a regency wig with a little pointy sword flying along and going, <laughs> even in the first <laughs> can, book. Can you do that again for us, please? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a Hannibal Barbera character. Uh, even in the first book, they portrayed the Bloody Baron as being very tall, gaunt, silent, severe, scary, the only person who could keep Peeves, the poltergeist, in line. I don't know how they translated that into what we saw on screen there. It's only a little thing, because it really, he doesn't figure in the story at all. And you, you know, find out some really dark things about him and the Grey Lady in the last book, but that's it. You know, I think that that probably fits into what we were talking about to, to kind of to start off with, about things being a little kiddified. Yeah. Uh, because if you're already putting ghosts in there, and you're already putting in nearly headless Nick, who, you know, has has his head chopped most of the way off and you get to, you know, see a, a wonderful stump shot there. Um, you, if you've already got, <laughs> if you've already got these things going on, you probably don't, and you're targeting a largely children's audience. Yeah. Putting in scary ghosts is probably not the direction you want to be going in. You want to kind yeah. of, not, there's, not there's a level that's around about ghostbusters that you just don't want to top. Right. They could have done it another way. That They went far too well, I'm far. I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying that's probably the rationale behind it's it. It's only a small thing, but it's just a, it's nicely indicative of, of, of some occasional long turns they made in this first film. I mean, they could have just shown him standing off to the side by himself being, you know, grumpy in general. They didn't necessarily yeah. have to make him this... Just being quiet, you know? Yeah. And also it's in black and white, so you don't even have to see the blood. Right. Um, they could have had him in the last battle in the in the eighth film going, <laughs> and poking at the Death Eater with this little sword, but that would have been crazy. Indeed. Also, though, Jo doesn't do herself any favours by picking a lot of names and terminology mm. that just sounds... A little bit silly. A little bit silly, yes. Yeah. That's... I was talking about this earlier today. That she writes herself into a corner several times in this series because a lot of the things in the first three books, maybe, are included just because they're kind of fun and cool, like the chocolate frogs and the portraits that move around and talk to each other and talk to you, and the ghosts. And when it finally comes to a time where genuine characters are dying, and you're like, well, couldn't they come back as ghosts? And in the film, the, the fifth book, Harry goes to Nearly Headless Nick and says, Sirius is dead. Could he not come back as a ghost? It's almost like Joe's going, ah, yeah, did kind of... Mm, yeah, kind of imply that that could happen. And Nick gives this really kind of half-assed answer of, oh, no, that's uh, that they, he wouldn't like that. He, you know, it's, it's like, well, no. He has pledged to watch over Harry. He would forego the immense pain of, or whatever it takes to be a ghost, and the sacrifice of that, to watch over Harry. It's, that's in his character. But it's it, it removes the fact that he's been taken away from Harry, in the story, if that's the case. So she has to kind of go back and go, yeah, just to address that thing, stop asking. He's not going to be a ghost. Well, you, you know, know it, oh, I, <laughs> I wanted it to happen. When I was reading that, I'm like, yeah, you know what? All these other guys came back as ghosts. He needs to come back. And I'm reading it going, oh, crud. 
That's yeah. how she fixed that lore? That's not right. That's actually something that would tie in from the very beginning. There's kind of some holes in the whole ghost thing, because why aren't his parents simply ghosts watching over him, if that's yeah. the case? Because, I yeah. mean, they show up in a couple of places, but you never, you know, they're not... They're not with him all the time. They're, they don't live at, at Hogwarts like like some of the other house ghosts do. There's some crazy stuff in the first few, which doesn't really fit with the more somber, realistic tone of the later books and films. So it's it's difficult to marry the two up sometimes. It's like you hold the. I, I literally went from watching finishing the first film to watching the extras on the on the last film just now, just to re- refresh myself on that. And the sudden change in tone and music. And everything is just so completely different. That's it's really good because if it had just been eight identical films the whole way through, it gets so bored. But they genuinely do change and evolve the whole way through. Well, um, and they, you know, there is something very positive about that. And again, we've already mentioned it is because um, Harry changes and grows and evolves, and the, the, all the children do. You are um, your view of the world and the things that you are aware of at the age of 10 and 11 and at the age of 17, 18 are completely different. Um, and I think she's basically allowed for that to happen in a way that I've never seen a series do. Mm. Yeah. But even like when Harry gets injured in the first movie and is recovering in the hospital ward compared to when he gets injured later on in the movies and is recovering in the hospital wards, it's different. Like in the first movie, everybody comes and visits him and it's all happy-go-lucky and cheery and let's bring him candy and let's get him happy and hopped up on sugar. And later on in the movie, it's like, oh, poor Harry. I don't know if I can go visit him. And it's it's just interesting how it's so much drearier that he's in the hospital recovering later on in the film. Every book. <laughs> well, that's yeah. true too. Kid's got his own bed. <laughs> so second film, big floppy boneless arm. Oh. Seventh film, Ron splinched, bleeding out in a forest. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. There will be no foolish wand-waving or silly incantations in this class. As such, I don't expect many of you to appreciate the subtle science and exact art that is potion-making. However, for those select few who possess the predisposition, I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. Then again, maybe some of you have come to Hogwarts in possession of abilities so formidable that you feel confident enough to not pay attention. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. Tell me, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? You don't know? Well, let's try again. Where, Mr. Potter, would you look if I asked you to find me a bezoar? I don't know, sir. And what is the difference between monkshood and wolfbane? 
Rosa. Pretty. Clearly, fame isn't everything, is it, Mr. Potter? Clearly, Hermione knows. Seems a pity not to ask her. Silence. Let's talk about the tripod, because we're now into Ron, Hermione and Harry territory. The tripod, this trio of friends who maintain throughout the whole series, and having them always be the same actors and actually watching them grow up, there was a little bit of a, a worry at some point that Emma Watson wouldn't re re reprise her role as Hermione somewhere around the fifth or sixth film, I think. Um, and thankfully that was ironed out. Um, but that would have been so strange. Yeah, imagine a completely new Hermione suddenly turning up, and not because of her death. It's um, yeah. Can you imagine so, if one of them had died? Like, I don't know if the films could have continued. <laughs> Black. <laughs> it is. But yeah, not. Imagine? Oh, how horrible would it have been for somebody to have died so young? Yeah. Oh my no, god, no, no, the films would have just been awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Had to get used to it. I mean, how awful for us. <laughs> I would have just been... made our entertainment more difficult. Right, so <laughs> let's move back to slightly brighter things and talk about <laughs> the tripod at 11 with the bushy hair and the uh, the gormless expression on Ron and the, <laughs> I can't be a w wizard, I'm just Harry. <laughs> Who would have thought that they would actually grow into really fantastic young actors? Well, and I have a hard time seeing any of them in any other roles, I have to, like, shake my head and go, okay, they're not Harry Potter, they're not Ron Weasley. Yeah. You know, they're not Hermione Granger anymore. They're actually actors. It's going to be like Mark Hamill. Very, very much so. But, you know, also the uh, the interesting thing is, is in this first movie, you know, knowing where they, how they grow up and how they fall in love with each other and who they fall in love with later on, you almost look at the first movie and you think about Hermione and Harry, there's almost a little bit of innocent love at the beginning between the two of them. Okay. I was just going to say, I don't think that that entirely goes away, and I think that that is deliberate. There's... Film 7. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but yes, they're, they're, you, you see the way their characters are in the first one, and it seems much more logical that she would be drawn to Harry and not Ron. Mm. Um, but I think you're wondering what Ron's bringing to the equation. In this yeah, film. but I think his his moment does come, and it does come in this film. I mean, he has many more moments further down the series, obviously. Um, but that um, the the way he um, it figures out the chess game and, and puts himself up for, for sacrifice so that they can carry on. I think that's the start of when she she starts to look at Ron a, a little bit differently than, than she has before. Which, to be fair, their first proper interaction, he was slagging her off and saying, no wonder she's got no friends. Actually, no, she was slagging off his crappy magic. Because <laughs> he was trying to turn Scabbers yellow, and she turned up and patronised the heck out of him. Yes, she was just, you know... I'm not going to say heck. Just because I can't say the F word, I'm not going to start talking about and, the and you Brady admit, Bunch. You have to admit that she is one stuck-up little girl. Sharon? I have to admit no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Okay, explain. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to come clean on this one. Um, yeah, basically... You were Hermione, weren't you? Hermione. <laughs> 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 but, but here's the thing, though. I, I see where she's 
coming from as a character so completely because at that age, and sometimes it comes a bit, I think with some it comes a bit younger, with some it comes a bit older, but, and maybe this applies to smart, clever boys as well. Please, smart, clever boys, tell me if this, this is the case. But when you're a girl and you have spent the younger part of your life being, um, being praised for excellence and being told that you're a very clever girl and this is, you know, you, you think that this is the right way to be. And then you get into an environment like secondary school or somewhere where all of a sudden your achievements and your, um, uh, your abilities are not the be all and end all. And all of the, the parts of your character that have been neglected because you've been focusing so hard on being a clever little girl come to the fore and you realize that you find it really difficult to make friends and you can't hold conversations with people without patronizing them it's so hard and i i I found it difficult the first time and and on many subsequent viewings not to see that scene without welling up a little bit because i feel for her so much at that point and it's pretty damn sharp (laughs) What the Leviosa, the, Leviosa. Specifically, scene. the bit where she, they're walking out of the classroom, and Ron, yeah, 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 and says, just afterwards, Ron says, "What does she? What does he say?" Um, it's something about no wonder she's got no friends, and yes, and past looking absolutely heartbroken. I've had countless mothers come up to me and say, "You know, just thank you so much for giving my daughter a role model. She absolutely idolizes Hermione." and I feel really privileged to have been able to play her. I would like to think that Hermione is a role model for girls. You see, I was a plain, and that is relevant. That, you know, that is relevant. That's not a trivial thing when you're a kid. I was a very plain, bookish, freckly, bright little girl. I was a massive bookworm. And I spent a significant part of my reading looking for people like me. Now, I, I didn't come up with nothing, you know. Uh, I remember Jo March, who had a temper and wanted to be a writer, so that was a lifeline. Uh, there's a heroine in a book called The Little White Horse that I've spoken about publicly, who was plain. And that was, that was fabulous. Wow, you get to be a heroine and you get not to be a raving beauty. Um, but, but, you know, these were pretty slim pickings. And then in creating Hermione, I felt I created a girl who was a heroine, but she wasn't sexy. Nor was she the um, girl in glasses who's entirely sexless. Do you know what I mean? She's a real girl. She's a girl. She, she's, she fancies Ron, but she, her hopes initially are pretty, <laughs> pretty low. And She's a real girl, but she, but she never compromises on being a smart girl. She never compromises in, in, in acting dumb. She never tries to make Ron feel better by pretending to be less than she is, which is why they don't get together a lot sooner. That's the reality of life. But I'm proud of Hermione. She is who she is. Um, and if that, you know, if that, if that spoke to, um, to girls like me, then of course I'm hugely, hugely proud of her. That's what it's all about. I was always the brains and the, you know, the bossy one when I was a kid, so it's freed us all. It really has.
We've sort of done Ron because he doesn't really. He's sort of he's this mawkish, friendly ginger kid for this first. Ron uh, is sort of comic relief at this yeah. point. I mean, he he has some moments where he goes beyond that, but he there, there's not a whole lot of depth to Ron in the first book. There's some great faces pulled by Rupert Grinch, <laughs> which is and clearly you know what, what I, he was hired for. I don't. I yeah. I think that's just him. I don't think that's Ron Weasley. I think that's just him. I think you also you needed a control character to explain wizarding to Harry in a totally down to earth way without the least bit of oh this is the magic penny feather um, just to be like it's a chocolate frog I've got six of them and um, and to just be just a kid he is just a kid he is your mate when you're at school and it, it's he's very very well written for uh, from a, from a fe- for a female to just capture what it's like to be a clod of a kid it's that's spot on. Obviously, Ron has a massive heart, and he gets his place. Like you say with the, with the uh, the chess game, he gets where he's going to be for the next ten years. He is going to be Harry's mate while Harry does the thing that he has to do because it's his destiny. He's just kind of happy to be along for the ride. That doesn't mean that he doesn't start to very slowly draw some resentment on that. What you have to remember with want Ron his own though, popularity is that that's not. That's not the first time he's been in that role. He is a yes. younger brother. And yeah. specifically to, um, how many brothers has he got? Four? Five? Hang on. Five. Bill, Fred, Charlie, Fred, Fred Charlie. George and Percy. And Percy. Five so he's got brothers. five older brothers. And Ginny. Most of whom distinguish themselves in some way or another. And he's, well, again, we, we'll go into it more deeply in, in the, the later books, but he's he's been in that role so often. I think he slips into it with Harry very naturally. The other thing is that uh, regarding Mrs. Weasley, you don't really get to see her much in this, but you've mentioned this one before, Sharon, that she clearly desperately wanted a daughter. So when yet another boy came along, she'd be like, oh, I guess you'll be Ron. Okay, shall we try again? And <laughs> thankfully, Ginny was born and they stopped. It's almost like Ron is... The extra one. The extra one, the spare. So, yeah, he's he's sitting on a lot of that throughout the book. It's almost amazing he doesn't turn into quite a nasty character or it doesn't affect him that much more. I think it's almost, he's got quite a lot of Sam going on in him. Yes. Yeah, you know? definitely. Definitely. But again, that's that. I think that um, that kindness and that understanding of, of his role and his place in life, you look at the way his parents have clearly brought up their children and you can see very easily where that comes from. And then there's Daniel Radcliffe as Harry, who I think did pretty well in this first film for such an incredibly daunting role, one that millions of other kids would want to do and one that thousands of other kids tried to do. He passed all the auditions. It wasn't really until the third one that he actually passed muster. And just watching him under a different director, much stronger director, I might add, mm-hmm. um, you're suddenly, yeah, you know what, he's Harry. And we'd also, it's significant, we had a year and a half between film two and three, which is different. They had, a, we had, they had a bit of extra time to go back to the drawing board and redesign Hogwarts, get a new Dumbledore, get a new look to it. Hair gets longer and voices start to break. Hair gets longer. Um, Ron, I think, doesn't ha- isn't um, Daniels' voice is breaking during film two, and um, Rupert's voice is breaking during film three. And there is a significant difference in Daniels' performance in the third but in this first one, he's just there for all the other kids to adore and identify with and just does a sort of a good job. Pretty much the best I can really say of his performance. Anyone? I, I, I think that's fair. 
I do like the fact that Joe made sure that Harry was not a Mary Sue. He was not exceptionally good at multiple different... Just, you know, without any effort. He was fantastic at this and fantastic at that. He's good at flying brooms and catching small things. That's about it, really, to begin with. He's not fantastic at potions. He's not fantastic at, at, at conjuring or the various other things that they do have on the GS Defense Against the Dark Arts, it's, um, he, he becomes, ex- actually, yeah, because of constant exposure, he becomes very good at Defense Against the Dark Arts. But that's, that's more the practical side of things. He's not academic, and that much is, is made obvious fairly early on. However, he is a good teacher. at Gringotts when they meet that goblin bank teller played by Warwick Davis who looks very much like Griphook who he plays later on you got Vern Troyer playing Griphook it just sort of leads them to the vault at Gringotts but the voice is Warwick Davis again and from a very a distance he looks almost like the same guy so in all seriousness you can pretty much just say that Warwick Davis played Griphook although he seems a little bit more jolly if that's the right word for a goblin, then he does by the uh, the end of the series. Oh, what can happen in seven years? Being tortured will do that to you. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> Would you say there's something to discuss regarding Professor Quirrell? Because obviously we never really get any insight into his character. You don't get much more in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I would say there's not much in the book, though. It's, it's hard to know how much of him is is him and how much is Voldemort, really. Yeah, that's true, actually. It is it is very neat the way they actually made sure that Ray Fiennes' makeup from then on after I think it was film four where they they brought back Voldemort's face as it then goes on uh, matched the uh, Voldemort face in the first one to the point where someone on the forum mentioned that uh, Ray Fiennes was really good as uh, the back of Quirrell's head and it's not even Fiennes it's almost the same performance but a completely different actor. <laughs> I think there is a thread of that, that that runs through the whole thing, actually. There's a lot of, of things that were done in the first one, um, design decisions and things like that, that you can you can sort of see that they might have been made for economic reasons or for reasons of speed or, or whatever, and they've remained true to them, and they've just had this way of sort of you know tweaking them ever so slightly for each film so that you can gradually get quite a significant change, but it happens so slightly each time that it grows from that original decision rather than it simply being do you know what we didn't like that we're going to change that completely except for Flitwick yeah first two films <laughs> Flitwick is this weird little wispy goblin Yoda type guy third film it's Warwick Davis dressed as a miniature Hitler dwarf what actually happened was that uh, Flitwick wasn't in the script so they had Warwick Davis come back and play the conductor but then they liked the look of the character so much that they just brought him back for the fourth film and made him Flitwick. 
So it's almost like Flitwick had a glamour spell and it went wrong and he accidentally said King of the Nazis. Um, and yeah, that, that was Flitwick from then on. It's, it's an odd, sudden change, but ultimately, like so many things in the first two films, it's sort of like Harry's perception. <laughs> Suddenly, it all changes by film three. But yeah, that's, that's, that's a nice way of making sure that uh, Warwick Davis is still in there. Got to say, huge, huge uh, fan of Warwick Davis. If you guys uh, listening have not yet seen Life's Too Short, then then watch it for for a, a you know massive amount of insight of what it's like to be a uh, a little person actor. A twisted fictional version of Warwick Davis is the lead. It's really good, especially if you like extras and The Office. Differences from the book. I've got a bullet point list here. Not starting with the Dursleys. I could have taken an extra 10, 15 minutes, frankly, of the film. I, I remember coming out thinking that just wasn't long enough. But uh, as we've already gone into reasons why they, they, they trimmed that down. They removed the Sorting Hat song. Again, probably weren't all that happy with the idea of music. No peeves in any of the films. It was supposed to be played by Rick Mail originally. Uh, his scenes were filmed for the first one, but they... They've never, they've never even released them, or not even on a DVD. So we, we never get to see this, not core character, but tertiary named character, um, who's mentioned pretty much in every book at some point. I don't know, do, do you feel like he was missing? Do, do you oh. wonder why JK, do you wonder why Joe kept going back to him? I don't really miss him. Yeah, I, I didn't miss him. Was, yeah, I don't think he was that significant a character. I mean, he has, is it Chamber where he's, kind of key to one of the plot points somebody sees through him or something? No, it's nearly Headless Nick uh, ah, gets right. um, frozen by the basilisk. But because he's dead already, he doesn't die. That's back when she was trying to not draw any blood. Mm. There's no Professor Bins, apparently, who was a spectral history of magic teacher. Leah, you just read it. Kelly, Kelly have you just read it as well? Yes. Did Any significant moments? Not particularly. That no. that's about the extent of it. He's the only professor who is is actually a ghost. That's pretty much it. If they can teach, then being a ghost can't be all that bad. Yeah, but they can only teach history because they can't learn anything new. Nice. Uh, they they changed the boa constrictor from Brazil to a Burmese python. That, don't know what. Maybe just because the Burmese python looks more threatening. But he wasn't from Burma because he was born in captivity. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, there's no Draco, Draco and Diagon Alley in Madame Malkin's robe shop, as I mentioned earlier. I, you know, I, I could have actually had that. that yeah, thing. I think that would have made actually a pretty big difference because yeah. now they don't they don't even meet on the train, do they? Mm. Nope. Nope. Yeah, because that's that's. So by the time they actually do meet at Hogwarts, that would have been their third meeting from what they actually did in the book. Yeah. Because they meet once in the robe shop before he knows who he is, and all he knows is it's this snobby kid who's talking about pure-blood wizard families. And then they meet again on the train when he pops into their cabin with his cronies and, you know, oh, basically Stan tries Marsh, to pull him like around. Stan Darsh. More or less, yeah. And, um... <laughs> and, um you know, basically says, oh, you shouldn't be hanging around with these guys, and, you know, makes an ass out of himself. And then they meet at Hogwarts again. So it's, it, I think it would have made a pretty significant difference if he had known what he was coming into, before, or if um, it had been a meeting with where neither of them knew who the other one was, instead of being immediately confronted with, this is Harry Potter. 
And even their meeting at Hogwarts in the movie was very, if you ask me, kind of stupid. It was like, hey, my name's Malfoy, and these are my cronies. And by the way, my first name is Draco. And then they did the hat sorting. That was like the only meeting they had. It wasn't even like who I am and why I'm significant and you're a little puny dude. You know, that was like all it was. I think, though, if you look at how they've had to shave Harry's characterization by that point, the just purely... the fourth film, they had to shave Harry. (laughs) 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 No, he doesn't have facial hair yet. No, (laughs) and that's why, because they shaved him. Um, It's a bit of a very grown-up. Whether for time or or because, you know, they didn't want to scare people too early or, or whatever... If you then give his nemesis more depth and more characterization than you've given Harry, Mm. you're on the back foot. And I think they had to, you know, if you, if you've seen how Draco acts around his parents and, you know, you get very early on. Just as an interjection, is Lucius or Narcissa present? Are they present? Sorry, I I, I don't mean specifically. Yeah, sorry, I phrased that badly. How he acts in an out-of-school environment where his per- his parents' influence is going to be much more prominent um, in the way he talks and the way he behaves. Um, and that is something that becomes very key to his character later on. And then how he acts in front of his friends where he's trying to be this big, you know, bully type and, and exert his influence. In this book, he doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. He's he's pretty much the same when he's going off about how oh you don't want to be hanging around with the wrong sort of wizard and I'm pure blood and this is how this is going to work I, that's that's how he is when he when Harry and he first meet and that's pretty much how he remains through the rest of the book he doesn't start to get character depth until a little later on I don't think there are so many times when I'm watching uh, Draco goading Harry that I just want to say ignore him just ignore him he'll go away. Yes, or slap him. That works too. Mm. But Harry just rises to the bait each and every time. It falls to Hermione to slap him by the third one. Mm. Indeed. Uh, you actually reminded me regarding the uh, the sorting hat scene. There's a bit where Ron whispers to Harry, "There wasn't a witch or wizard who went bad. Wasn't in Slytherin." <laughs> they had already released the book of Prisoner of Azkaban at this point. Sirius Black from Gryffindor House, was a known criminal and traitor. Why would Ron say that and admit that particular piece of information? Could it be that he's trying to protect Harry from knowing about that one Gryffindor? And if he'd said, there are, apart from there's this one Gryffindor, and Harry would have asked, and he said, it's something to do with the parents. I don't know. Um, Or could it just be an oversight on Steve Close's part? I don't know. At that point, would would they have known about I mean, I mean obviously in the books they would have but during the filming of the first movie as it stood in the first movie would they have even known about Sirius Black yeah the, like uh, would the or, students have I mean would that have been a common knowledge thing I think so because I, I, when he gets out in the third one they were like oh, Sirius Black you haven't heard of Sirius Black and it's like it's been this thing everyone's known about for years oh, okay. yeah no, but I, at that point I, I could be wrong 
no, no, no. I, I know what you mean, but I think at that point it's, oh, you've never heard of him because he's an escaped lunatic prisoner. When they release on the news, you know, this incredibly scary schizophrenic person has got out yeah. of this minimum security jail. We don't know how it <laughs> happened. You don't, don't then think get people turning minimum around. Security well, no, but you, you don't. You know what I mean? How they play it up on the on the news, yeah. but you don't then get people saying, "Oh yes, I remember when he was put away for triple homicide." You know, it, it's they know him because he got out. They don't necessarily know what he went in there for in the first place, and the fact that he was in Gryffindor would probably have been somewhat long forgotten by that stage. What I want to know, though, is if there wasn't a witch or wizard ever went, that went bad, wasn't in Slytherin, why does Slytherin House not have its own educational psychologist? Um, why does Slytherin House even exist? I always wonder that. Yes. Why just get all, all the quote-unquote bad kids to integrate into the other three houses? Yeah, well, well they no, that's not. Yeah. Why don't so you have them sorted? And army. if the sorting hat says Slytherin, you go, oh, okay, well, let's take you over here to the special spot for the Slytherins. Because <laughs> you're a bad kid. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, it was like, well, well no, because the Slytherin, because that way we can, you know, Make sure that Keep they an eye on them. But it doesn't work. Rubbish. Really, it this it allows work. Voldemort to get the, uh, the the ties that it requires to build an army of people who are racist enough to kill. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most glaring errors. Not, not errors, but one of the most... <laughs> One of the most egregiously horrible things that she does is never really explains why this is allowed to continue going on in the first place. It's like profiling when you go to a school. Do you have any, like, really racist tendencies? Well, you want to go into racist house. <laughs> racist house. Everyone, here's your white sheet. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a snake. Anyway. So anyway, <laughs> the leg-locking scene uh, with uh, Paul Neville has been trimmed out, although it is in the deleted scenes. That was filmed. Uh, the Norbert scene has been trimmed down. Uh, originally, they went onto the tower to try to get Norbert the dragon to... Which Weasley is it? Charlie? Yes. Yeah, uh, who's into dragons and that. And that's what gets them the detention. Leah, you mentioned that Neville was in the forest. Yeah, well, that's kind of tied to the whole taking Norbert up the tower thing because uh, Neville com comes to try and stop them, and therefore he is also given detention and is also out with them in the forest mm. for the whole centaur, unicorn, Voldemort thing. Of which there are three centaurs, not one, but yes. obviously they figured they could they could cut their effects budget by one third only having one centaur. Fair enough. I didn't really need three. One's fine. They, they, I mean, if you like centaurs, watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Quite a few of them in that. Um, Somebody might think they're sexy and want to see more. T t totally. <laughs> I mean, not what well, some people might. It's, it's going to snare chicks left, right, and center. A bare-chested, <laughs> rippling, muscled man and a and horse. A horse. <laughs> it doesn't get exactly. any better than that. Could he be Especially a unicorn? The one. Could he be a unicorn who is also on fire? <laughs> And shoots rainbows out of his horn. What's the rest, Leah? Um, well, are you talking about the best ever. tattoo in the world? Yes. Uh, that was the dragon on one arm that's shooting fire, and the unicorn on the other one that's shooting um, uh, rainbows out of its horn, and then they meet in the middle, and there's a heart. Pulse <laughs> <laughs> chicks. Listen, clearly you, you don't know what you're talking about here. <laughs> Oh, okay. We proved it in tests. Right. <laughs> On a slightly different note, I got him off an Irish fellow. The stupidest throwaway line in the entire film. He's talking about Fluffy, a three-headed dog. Ah! Cer Cerberus. 
Um, he got him off a Greek fellow. That's the joke. I don't know why they changed that from Greek to Irish. No. I, I, do I told you why. Want it's because watch. of rampant racism, and clearly, if he was exactly. in the pub to begin with, he's Irish, because Irish are drunk all the time, drunk all as the time. we learned from Seamus. To Seamus, who for some reason in these films blows things up, and he's Irish, and he also he wants to turn this water into rum, because they like the drinks they do with the Irish. It's like, for goodness sake. So he's sake. a drunken bomber. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That comes out of nowhere. That's not in the book. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's it, if it turns up at any point in any of the later books, please tell me. And if I it turns up retros- retrospectively after he is portrayed thus in the films, then that's fine. Yeah. There is kind of a payoff at the end because he sets up the exploding bridge in film eight, but uh, st- I, I, get, I kind of you, you get a little bit tired of Seamus trying to do a spell and it blows up in his face. It's kind of like uh, is he wily coyote? <laughs> Yeah, then you get that soot in the face, hair standing on end, uh, you know. Which doesn't really work with the tone of the later films, anyway. And by the last, he would be so covered in scars, it would be unbelievable. He'd be missing an ear, his nose would be flat, you know, there'd be lines all across his forehead. Right. Um, also, they, they kind of, they, they amalgamated the three centaurs into one, because Firenze was supposed to be a, a blonde, fair-headed palomino, um, and he kind of looks a bit more like Bane the way he's portrayed in the uh, film. Just a little thing. But I suppose they wanted to make the uh, centaur look kind of exotic and unusual and dark. And the should be full that of That is a term I have only ever heard in girl Girls books. lit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to make him sexy, I'm telling you. Uh, isn't there... Isn't there uh, I may be completely making this up, and feel free to cut this out if I am, but isn't there a bit later in one of the later books where he and Hermione have like some kind of... What? Not, no, like, have you been oh, reading Harry Potter slash flick again? Maybe I have. <laughs> but I thought there was a thing where they had some kind of conversation later on, and it was like he was hitting on her or something. Maybe I am making yes. it up. No, no, no. I think I'm not right. making it up, though, thank God. I no, you're not crazy. making it up, because I think there was something where she thought that he was hitting on her. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm going to have to, I'll have to come back to this later, but I swear to God I'm not making that up. You know, I'm not. Once you go centaur, you never go back. It's physically <laughs> impossible. <laughs> Well, my, but my question is, if if a centaur and a human cre- procreate, what does oh, that God. make? And how does Lots a woman get... It makes... Which, which exactly. That makes pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> And how, do, and how does the human give birth to it? Because that's like a four-legged animal coming out of a two-legged animal. Let us write, Joe, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we want to see in the sequel. This is why the centaurs keep so to their own forest. So they don't, that's they why, don't that's want to see the, the answer to that question. That's why the dark forest is, is, is off-limits to students. Because uh, <laughs> we don't want to see that happen.
So there's no troll room or potion riddle in the uh, Philosopher's Stone gauntlet. Because uh, there's like a really elaborate riddle that Hermione has to solve involving what? Was it seven potions? Yeah. Yes. You could see why they'd be like, oh, come on. Seriously. Can, can we just it get It would kind of be a slowdown at that point. Yeah. Like, Hermione, they're sort of voicing very non-action-based brain teasers to the audience. The audience is just like, come on, Hermione, you're smart. Let's get us to the end boss, shall we? So I understand why they removed that. And um, one very significant part of the uh, the final confrontation with uh, Voldemort is Harry, once he realizes that his touch burns, actively shoves his hands on Quirrell's face and destroys him. Yeah, that doesn't happen at all but in the book. I don't, I don't think it burns. It turns him to stone. Ash. Ash. Yeah. Stone, yeah. It, it burns! I mean, he didn't actually say it burns, but he may have done. It burns! It burns. It's no, in, in the book, he doesn't. Uh, Harry doesn't even register any of this because he passes out as yeah. Quirrell's trying to choke him to death. Yeah, just, Quirrell yeah. just jumps on him, starts with, with the chokehold. And yeah, in uh, the movie, you see the powdered remains of Voldemort kind of get up, flow through Harry, and get out the door. He doesn't. Yeah. None of that. He, he doesn't. He doesn't see that in in the book. He just he passes mm-hmm. out, wakes up in the hospital wing with Dumbledore standing over him, and they go, "Oh, I don't know. Maybe he's still out there." In the movie, you know he's still out there. You saw him leave. And Nicholas and I have had a little chat, and agreed it was best all around. But that Flamel, he'll die, won't he? He has enough elixir to set his affairs in order. But yes, he will die. How is it I got the stone, sir? One minute I was staring in the mirror, and the ah, next. You see, only a person who wanted to find the stone, find it, but not use it, would be able to get it. That is one of my more brilliant ideas. And between you and me, that is saying something. Does that mean, with the stone gone, that is, that Voldemort can never come back? Oh, I'm afraid. There are ways in which he can return. Harry, do you know why Professor Quirrell couldn't bear to have you touch him? It was because of your mother. She sacrificed herself for you. And that kind of act leaves a mark. Oh no, this kind of mark cannot be seen. It lives in your very skin. What is it? Love, Harry. Love. Ah! Bertie Botts, every flavour beans. I was most unfortunate in my youth to come across a vomit-flavoured one. And since then, I'm afraid, I've lost my liking for them. But I think I could be safe with a nice toffee. Mmm. A lot. Earwax. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the thing that I came back from on this was that um, because it gets so dark by the last film, to go back and actually start watching this again, you need this Wizarding World to be this sweet and this 
heartfelt for Harry. You need there to be um, a rosy history for Harry to look back on and want to save. Uh, because if it, if it was a, a tale of a, a, the isolation of a young boy, um, and it was as dark and gritty and realistic as the later films become, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't register for an eleven year old. It would be like he was too old, too fast. Well, if yeah. he starts out being hopeless, why does he want to yeah. fight for it in the first place? Yeah. yeah, I agree. This is really not one of my favorite films, probably because of the tone, but it is kind of necessary that it started where it did. I, I, I think it's my least that. favorite of the eight. I don't know. I, I I remember that it's been quite a while since I've seen Chamber, so I'm gonna have to I'll have to have a look. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely in the bottom couple for me, which is not to say that it's a bad film because I don't think that it is at all. But it's compared to where some of the other ones take this, it's it's not uh, not up top for me. This one and Chamber were the two that I was most tempted to combine because mm. I thought tonally they're very, very similar. They were actually filmed back-to-back. Mm-hmm. It, the, the, the second they finished the final f- uh, shot on this first one, they, they started the next one. So it feels very much like a continuation. You know, I think that this movie was necessary to have the tone that it did to set up the other seven Mm. In the sense that we needed to have kind of a, I don't know if I want to call it a rosy beginning, because obviously Harry had a horrible upbringing to this point, Mm. but we had to have a kind of introduction to how Harry joined Hogwarts and how Voldemort's beginning of his resurrection um, in order to understand where Harry is going to go. It's by far not my favorite, but it's not my least favorite. I think Chamber is my least favorite of all of the movies. This one, you know, it follows the book, I think, the closest of all of them, even though it does leave out quite a bit still. Um, But I think it does follow um, Joe's book the most. So... I think it's so that would uh, imply that a lot of the flaws with the film are actually with the text. Yes. Yeah. That's that's something I feel about Watchmen. That everyone complaining about issues that they have with uh, with Watchmen. I think that those issues are actually present in the text. No one ever says that, but yeah. Just depends on the issues, but. Uh... <laughs> in film, does Zack Snyder, Sharon. It's interesting what what you guys have said about Chamber because having rewatched Chamber fairly recently, I actually saw a lot more in it than I had previously seen. And previously, I would have said straight off Chamber is my least favourite. But I do think there are things about it that annoy me. That there is more in it than I thought there was before. So, but obviously, we'll go into that more later. Um, but I agree completely that there are things about the first film that are not great and uh, when you compare them with the later films it doesn't come off very favourably but they are necessary to get that world set up and to be quite frank if they'd had just a fractionally small scene showing that Harry went back to the Dursleys between the shopping trip and starting Hogwarts and if the wand shop hadn't been quite so um, dramatically explosive I think I would have been more or less completely happy with the film it's not outstanding it's not amazing but for what they've got and for where they're going um, I think they did do a pretty damn good job also we're comparing it against the last 10 years worth of kids entertainment which by the way was ramped up 
because of these films. There have been some cracking films. So if you say it's not that fantastic a film, you're comparing it to things like Narnia, which, I mean, there have been some really phenomenally good films in the past 10 years. There have also been some fantastic films in the 80s. Though these two decades have, have been have really ramped up in terms of kids' entertainment. And also the, the performances. You, you kind of, you're comparing 11-year-old kids who'd never acted before yeah. with kids who have not only now had 10 years acting practice, but have had 10 years playing the same characters. Yeah. And, uh, and the role has just been given more and more texture over the years, so they've got, had more and more to read into the characters. I almost feel bad about with this or any of the other Harry Potter films about saying that one is even my least favorite or most favorite because they all they're all kind of necessary they all have different roles that they fill within the series and maybe some of them do do it better than others but I don't think that there's any that I would want to have done a whole lot differently I mean yes there are changes that I would make but I don't I don't see that there are uh, major overhauls that I would make. I'm by no means saying that any of them are perfect. Mm. There are definitely changes, but as as taking an entire film and saying this should have been something that it wasn't, or this was not what it should have been, I I don't think that that's true of any of them. And at the time, I think they probably weren't quite aware of what they could have been. Mm. Yeah. Because the the later books didn't exist, and I think it took uh, is it Quaron? Yes. Uh, to to bring out what he he brought out in the third film for people to go ah actually this can be done and it you know it, it can be done in this way. I think before that that you could probably count the number of really well characterized dark children's films on one hand if that right that is going to about do it for the first film the first book the first part of this eight part series Uh, there is bucket loads to discuss still we will be back soon to talk about Chamber of Secrets Uh, before we go do you guys want to pimp your shows Uh, start with Leah you can find me on uh, GamerDork.net, where I also host the podcast, uh, which Alex is frequently on. And you can also find me on Gonzo Planet. And Kelly. You can find me over at TheMerryGamers.net. Um, we can also be found on GamingAngels.com. Okay. And Sharon, do you want to pimp where you appear? Mostly on Gonzo Planet. I have a couple of articles on Gonzo Planet and... I am also on Twitter, KaiBoxer, C-A-I underscore B-O-X-E-R. Well, we're going to leave you with some of John Williams' pretty fantastic score, which we're going to talk about for the Chamber of Secrets show, which I think James Batchelor's coming on, and he does love talking about John Williams. And it's significant to note that this piece of music that plays here when Harry's uh, leaving the uh, train at Hogwarts uh, is the same music that plays at the epilogue of film eight which uh, gives us a wonderful circle. So we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter specials. I've been Alex Shaw, and I solemnly swear I am up to no good.